Let's pray before we read God's word tonight. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that it is a word in every season that is helpful for our souls. We're thankful that every word that is contained in this book is inspired, that it is breathed out by you, that it is effectual, that it does not return void. We pray that even as we turn to what feels like just a chapter on history, we would hear what it is that you would have to say to us tonight. You work in and through your people, and how you are accomplishing your purposes always, always in this world. We're reminded of that even this evening. In Christ's holy name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, this is the holy and errant word of God. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you should send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So please the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. 
And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? That Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I always hope to be growing in the Christian life. I hope till the day that I die, and I hope as part of that growth that I am always growing in my understanding of the Bible. You think about that though, growth in person and growth in understanding of the Bible, it doesn't come apart from humility. For we cannot grow in person or knowledge unless we are willing to recognize that maybe we haven't grown as far as we need to, or maybe we don't understand everything as we thought that we once did, or maybe didn't understand it correctly. For, as a rule of thumb, I always want to stand firmly upon the foundational truths of Scripture, and yet as I do, I, I want to, to hold loosely and be willing to change my conviction about this or that at any point if it is proven to me from the Scriptures and it becomes apparent to me that what I was holding on to was incorrect, except for those, of course, foundational truths of the Scripture. You know, firm conviction with the safeguard of humility is a good thing. A firm conviction, but safeguard it with humility. We see this in Nehemiah in our text today, conviction with humility, and he's a good example. I say all of that because when I first came to the Reformed faith, one of the things I first embraced in the Reformed faith and that excited me about the Reformed faith was uh, the glories of a, a, a redemptive historical approach to the Scriptures. That is that in the Scriptures, all the Scriptures are the unfolding of this one story and all of the Scriptures are this unfolding of the truth that Christ is the center of the Scriptures. And that is that every single text points to Christ in some way or another. And I absolutely believe that. But that led me to deride those interpretations of Scripture that told us to be like someone. It used to be that people would call those the killer bee sermons. Be like David or be like Samuel or be like Joshua or be like Moses or be like Paul. 
I still believe the redemptive historical approach to the Scripture is the dominant approach and should be what always informs our understanding of the Scriptures and should be our underlying hermeneutic and our way of interpreting the Scriptures. And yet I have in recent years, I've begun to walk back some of my earlier rhetoric. Because I think there are some real benefits to looking at the Scriptures and looking at the lives of others in the Scriptures and saying we're to emulate them. I am to look like this person or that person in the way that they reflect Christ, in the way that they live a godly life. Look at so-and-so. Look at their life and look at how they model Christ-likeness and godliness and be like them. That, that's a good application of Scripture. It's a good interpretation of Scripture. And I believe Nehemiah is one of these in the Scripture. I think one of the reasons that we're given this book is that Nehemiah is set up before us as an example of godliness. That's why we get so many just kind of little tidbits here and there into his thought process and what he's doing and what he's thinking and where his heart is at. It's because he's set up before us as, as a godly figure, a Christ-like figure that we're to emulate what it looks like to live in a relationship with God. In fact, I think Nehemiah is one of the best examples in the Scriptures of godly character. And even more so is one of the best examples in Scripture of a godly leader. Of what it looks like to be a godly leader who is in union with God. Who is seeking to reflect godliness in their life and lead others in this. And so that's what I want to do this evening is take a look at this passage and take pointers from Nehemiah's godly leadership. We left off Nehemiah a couple weeks ago with him receiving news from his brother Hanani that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and, and there is great despair because of this that the walls are broken down and the people of Israel are being mocked by their enemies. And this plan that they had invoked upon of not only building the temple, but, it, but building the walls to surround themselves and to protect themselves, that this has been dashed to pieces. The gates were destroyed with fire. The walls were broken down. And we learn that Nehemiah was a cupbearer before the king, that he was a cupbearer before the great king of all the land, the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, that it was his job to take the cup and to drink it before King Artaxerxes did to make sure that there was no poison in the cup. And so he had a kind of unfettered access to the king, unlike anyone else, or unlike very few. And as Nehemiah receives this news, we know that he mourned for days, he wept, and he began to pray for wisdom, and he began to pray for God's favor, that God would grant him success, that when he did breach the subject with the king of Persia, with King Artaxerxes, that he would respond favorably, and that there might be some provision for the people of Israel, the people of God in the land. And he has prayed, we we get to the beginning of chapter 2 and we find that it's the month of Nisan in chapter 1. We're told that Nehemiah received this news about Jerusalem in the month of Chislev. So Nehemiah prayed for three or four months that the Lord would open the door for him to have an audience with the king where it would be received favorably. Where he could ask for help for the land of his fathers. And then we're told 
In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah clearly served faithfully in the king's court day in and day out. He served God faithfully by serving Artaxerxes faithfully. He saw his vocation as part of his discipleship, his worship of God, and so he did it with joy. He did it with so much joy that when he came into the presence of the king without joy on his face, it was noticeable. King Artaxerxes knew that there was something wrong because there was something different about the servant of his that had been in his presence day in and day out and had faithfully labored. Nehemiah is a man of character, day to day a man of character, faithfully serving God in the station that God had placed him in where he was at, and it is because It's because he is faithful day in and day out that he is afforded an opportunity when the moment arrives. It's because of that. God's people never know what their faithfulness today might provide for grand kingdom opportunities tomorrow. They don't know what the Lord might do through you because you're faithful today, what he might do through you tomorrow. That was true of Esther. That was true of Daniel, that was true of Joseph, and it's true here of Nehemiah. So it could be true of you. Character absolutely counts. I uh, had a seminary professor, and I can remember him standing before us in class one day. He was the chair of his department, and I remember him talking about another professor that was serving underneath him in this department, and he was talking about the hiring of that professor. And I remember him saying to us as a class, he said, when we were doing the search for a professor, I said, I want one thing, a man of character. He said, everything else I can teach, everything else I can train this man in, but I can't teach or train character. Just hire me a man of character. And he said, that's what we got. And I remember him looking at us and he said, when you hire, you hire for character. Everything else can be learned. Everything else can be taught. Character matters in our workplaces. It matters in all of life. And Nehemiah exemplified that and he provided an opportunity for himself and even more importantly for the kingdom because he was a man of character. The king asks him why he's sad, and Nehemiah tells him in verse 2, then I was very much afraid, he says. Love his honesty here. He is no doubt afraid for two reasons. First, he's a servant of the king, and as a king's servant, he is to go about his duty with joy. He's not to be a distraction. He's a servant. He's not to call attention to himself. He's a servant. But here, his countenance was so different that it drew attention from the king that there's something wrong with my servant. And so the king asks him. Some commentators say, well, Nehemiah went into the presence of the king with a downcast look on purpose. 
And I think that's just ridiculous because he says he's afraid once the king notices it. No, it was, he was grieving so desperately for the people of God and for the city of God and for the kingdom of God. His heart was so downcast with that that it spread through his countenance. It was on his face. And the king notices. He's having trouble hiding it. And that is dangerous in the presence of a king. But second, and even more dangerously, Nehemiah knows that his moment that he has prayed about has come. He's asked the Lord for wisdom and guidance for when he should speak. He wanted success in the sight of this man who is all-powerful in the world at this time. And he says here at the end of chapter 1, he's been praying for this, Lord, give me success in the eyes of this man. And now all of a sudden the moment has come. But he is absolutely terrified. It is a frightful moment. Because Nehemiah knows that the subject he is about to breach threatens the king himself. It was the king. It was Artaxerxes who had declared that they should no longer build the wall. It was his decree that it should be stopped. If you look over at Ezra, just the book before, in Ezra chapter 4, you look there in verses 11 through 16, you see this letter was sent to Artaxerxes, and the letter is explaining that the Jews are rebuilding the wall, and then at the end of that letter, verses 14 through 16, let me just read that, what they say, what the enemies of the Jews say. They say, now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, meaning Jerusalem, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. King Arzartes, you're threatened. These are a people that are rebels and raise the rebel flag, and they're trying to rebuild their walls. And so Artaxerxes responds, verses 21 through 22 especially, where he sends a letter back. He says, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? It's his decree. And Nehemiah knows this. And Artaxerxes knows this. Nehemiah not only has character, he has courage, incredible courage. He does not shy away from telling the king what has him downcast, though it could mean not only a rebuke, it could mean something even greater, it could mean his firing, but not only his firing, it could mean his very death. He could be brought up on charges of treason and rebellion, but he has courage. He speaks, though he was afraid, he speaks. 
godly leaders have courage. Notice, though, that having courage does not mean that we don't have tact. Nehemiah responds to the king with tact and with respect, something that is absolutely disappearing in our day. Seems like you're considered courageous today if you are so resolute that you're disrespectful of the other person that is before you or the person that is of the opposite position. That actually shows that you have conviction. But that is not Christ like and that is not God like. Now, Nehemiah says, Let the king live forever. He's careful, he has tact. He he recognizes the king as king. He doesn't mention Jerusalem at the outset. He simply answers the question, my face is sad because the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's an honest, it's a tactful, it's a courageous reply. He could have said to him, I'm, a sh I'm downcast and I'm saddened because you stopped the walls from being built around the city of my father's. It's you that's caused this doesn't, even though they both clearly knew it. Talk about a moment of complete and utter tension. Nehemiah mentions this, and the king knows that what he is speaking of is the city of Jerusalem, and it is because of his decree. No wonder Nehemiah was fearful, but that is when courage is most needed. Then is when character is especially shown when we are under pressure. You want to know what you truly are, you find out when you're under pressure. This exchange here, it has all the makings of what we would expect between a servant and his king. Nehemiah is deferential and in his tone with the king, and the king responds in kind of these short, abrupt quips. He just says, What are you requesting? Here we see another characteristic of a godly leader. Nehemiah again shows that he is a man of fervent prayer, as we've seen in the weeks before. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. This would not have been a noticeable prayer. The people that were around the king maybe at this time, we don't know. Were there anybody else there? We know that the queen was there. But they wouldn't have noticed that he prayed. This would have been one of those kind of heartfelt, short, kind of just reflexive, spontaneous, soul-stirred prayers that you offer up. Just in a moment, in his mind, under his breath. But such spontaneous prayers are only natural for a person who lives a consistent and constant life of prayer. In that moment, he wouldn't have responded like that if his, his life wasn't already marked by prayer. He would have thought, how can I get at this with the king in a way that he will respond favorably? But that is not his MO. He immediately goes to the Lord in prayer. And only then does he speak. Again, he's tactful. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, he says, let me be sent back to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He makes the request. We're told that Artaxerxes is there with the queen. Uh, we know from like the book of Esther that the queens of the Persians weren't usually there at official state functions, so... 
This is most likely not an official dinner that Nehemiah is at where he's tasting the cup of the king before he eats, but maybe a private dinner. Maybe that's why it's mentioned that the queen's there, or maybe the queen is mentioned because she had some kind of influence over her husband, and, and so she's mentioned there. We don't know. But the king's response is favorable. He says, how long will you be gone and will you return? And implied in that is that he's granting Nehemiah's request. And Nehemiah is ready with an answer. He not only is ready with an answer to how long he will be gone, but he makes requests of the king for letters. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem that there will be opposition. That the king has decreed that these walls not be rebuilt. He also knows that there were enemies that were already there in the land that had brought this charge against the Jews. So he knows that he's going to a place where there's going to be opposition. And so he asked for letters. And not just letters that would, that would allow him to be able to stand up against these opposers, but also a letter as he thinks down the road and he knows that Asaph is the keeper of the Lord's woods there. And he's going to need these woods. He's going to need timber so that he can rebuild the structures. And so he asks for a letter to get supplies for him. And here we see that a godly leader is not just busy with fervent prayer, but with adequate planning. There are some in the church who think it's, it's sub-spiritual to plan. Coming into the pulpit or into a a prayer meeting with a prayer that has already been written out is somehow subspiritual. That going to a church meeting where it is too organized is subspiritual. That heading into a counseling appointment with someone where you're going to sit down and counsel someone and thinking through it beforehand and thinking what it is that you might need to say to them that somehow that's, that's subspiritual because it's the spontaneous. That is spiritual. That's how the Spirit works, is spontaneously. That is nonsense. Fervent prayer does not rule out adequate preparation. Just as adequate preparation must never rule out fervent prayer, a godly leader does both. He plans and he prays. She plans and she, she prays. She does both. Nehemiah then journeys to the land with these letters in hand, and thankfully that was the case because enemies are ready for him as soon as he gets there. He, he didn't journey alone, as he tells us. The, the king sends him with a whole cadre of officers and with mounted men, horsemen. And so his arrival would not have gone unnoticed, and his authority would have been evidently clear. But his enemies are not discouraged by this. There are three whom Nehemiah mentions. Two are mentioned in verse 10 and then the final one in verse 19. The first is Sanballat, the Horonite is the first. We have a document from 407 B.C. which mentions Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. We know much about him as we look through documents and the ancient world. Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, was most likely the governor of Ammon, and servant or slave here, I think is just a pejorative term that Nehemiah is using to kind of just drag Tobiah through the mud once again, because he's not a servant, he's not a slave. Uh, it's probably just an insult that he 
speaking of him in this way. He's also not an Ammonite. That doesn't refer to Tobiah's ancestry, but rather identifies him as one who is ruling over the Ammonites, and so is another way of just kind of sticking it to Tobiah. The Tobiads will play a major role in the history of Israel in the generations to come, and many think that Tobiah was the beginning of this family line. Geshem, the Arab, mentioned in verse 19, was some kind of chief among people in northwest Arabia. He was actually probably even more powerful than the other two. And archaeologists have found silver cups that were given as offerings to different Arabian goddesses with an inscription on them, noting that they were given by Geshem, the king of Kedar. There are other ancient sources which show that he ruled over a whole group of Arabian tribes and that he controlled Moab and that he controlled Edom along with parts of Arabia. So these are three formidable foes. In fact, this is a triumvirate that is, that is unlike many that we see in the Scriptures. They are formidable. And Nehemiah, he arrives with this royal entourage and these enemies, they are ready to receive him, and he does absolutely nothing. He does nothing. And here he exemplifies yet another godly trait and mark of godly leaders. He exercises patience. He says that for three days he did nothing. He simply waited upon the Lord. He waited upon the Lord for the right moment for the right timing. Just as he had done before when he prayed for three or four months just waiting on the Lord, waiting for the right moment when he should approach Artaxerxes, he shows patience yet again. He's going to wait three days. He's got this entourage. He's got the letters. He's got the rule. He's got the authority to do this, but he's going to wait. And he famously goes out by night by himself and he inspects the walls. He goes around Jerusalem. He's at the southern tip of Jerusalem. He goes out the, the western side of the city of Jerusalem, and then he swings around the southern end. He goes through the valley gate, and he journeys down to the dragon spring, and then to the dung gate, which led out to the valley of Hinnom, and the, the valley of Gehenna, where the trash was taken. And he inspected the walls. And as he inspected the walls, he found that they were all broken down, as he was told. And he found that the gates were burned, as he was told. And then he went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. The king's pool we know is the pool of Siloam in the New Testament where Jesus there heals the blind man. And he found that there was no space for the animal that he was riding there to, to keep going. It is at the boulders and the rocks from the destruction of the wall when King Nebuchadnezzar came and he sacked the city of Jerusalem that he had so destroyed the walls that there were so many boulders and so many rocks there that he couldn't even pass with an animal. In fact, in excavations of the city in 1961, Dr. Kenyon found what may have actually been this huge pile of rubble from Nebuchadnezzar's assault and destruction of Jerusalem. This is this text of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2 here, where he goes around and he mentions these gates and his survey of the wall is one of the best ancient sources about what Jerusalem used to look like. And archaeologists still rely on it. 
He's planning. He's taking assessment of the situation himself. And after three days, he's ready for action. One might say he wasn't patient enough. Nehemiah, you come from far away. You've only been here for three days, and you are now going to set about and tell us what we should do with these walls when we've tried this before, and it didn't work. How do you know enough after three days to tell us what to do? Yes, Nehemiah is patient as a leader. He spent three or four months in prayer. He waited for the right moment after three days before he tells anyone what he's about to do. But once he has ample knowledge, once he is convicted enough that it's time to go, he leads. Leaders lead. That's what they do. He goes forward. This is maybe one of the most important, I think, characteristics of godly leaders. They know when to go. And they go. And too many are immobilized by wanting to have 100% of all the information. Or if we can't get 100%, then we want 90% of the information so that there are no surprises and so there aren't any trials ahead. Everything worked out. Everything planned. But that just isn't possible. And it causes so many failures, not just in the world, but in the church. I remember being on a men's leadership retreat once. We were uh, going to Civil War battlefields. And, and uh, this man that was leading the retreat, I remember him saying to us, I don't remember the exact percentages anymore. I remember him saying about Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Ulysses S. Grant, all three of them. And they all had a different percentage. But they all said the same thing. When I get to 70% or 75%, a conviction that we should go, that we should charge, that we should do, I go. I give the command. Now, whether you agree with their politics or not, or their convictions or not, they were all effective leaders. Leaders lead. And that requires taking action. That's what Nehemiah does. He gathers all the Jews. He gathers the priests. He gathers the nobles, all the officials, and all the rest of the people who were to do the work. Now, you think about this group, this would have been a demoralized army of workers. They have tried this project and been stopped before. They are surrounded by enemies, and this is a massive project that is before them. And now Nehemiah is telling them it's time to rebuild. And I think it's here that Nehemiah shows some of the best traits of a godly leader. He does this so well. A godly leader is a motivator. He's an encourager of others. There's that old truism that if you want to know who is a leader, well, you look and you see, is anybody following them? That's a leader. And few follow if you don't know how to motivate, and Nehemiah does this well. He tells them of the problem, verse 17, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. 
he points out that they are suffering derision. It is absolutely fascinating to me that he, he sets a higher vision before these people that he is seeking to motivate. He helps them to see their position in light of a greater story. He doesn't talk about their lack of safety. Instead, he highlights the nation's disgrace. We're suffering derision, he says. This is the trouble we are in, he says. You see, Jerusalem is the city of the kings. It's the city of David. It's the city from which the Messiah shall come forth from. This is the city of the kingdom. And they're deriding us. And they're making fun of our city. The city of the great king. Ah, that is motivating. Setting the vision bigger than self, bigger than simply your family and your family's safety. Setting the vision and the scope of all of redemptive history. Setting the kingdom of God before the people of God. Notice how he does this. He's not a leader who sets himself up above others. And speaks down to them. Look at the language of the pronouns. It's not you. It is see the trouble we are in. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That's godly leadership. That's effective leadership. That's servant leadership. greatest among you shall be the servant of all. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is Christ-like. Nehemiah's zeal is infectious. He believes what he is setting about to do, and it stirs the people. And so he says in verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He is absolutely zealous for this work, and the people catch the vision. They say, let us rise up and build, they say. So Nehemiah says they strengthen their hands for the good work, a good work for the sake of the kingdom, a good work for God. They are laboring together now in this. You see, that's the final characteristic we see of Nehemiah here. He has confidence in God and he labors for God. That's marked his whole life, but you see it especially here. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus said. Nehemiah, he has his focus upon God and giving glory to God. That's what motivates him. That's what stirs him. That's what encourages him to lead. He tells them of the problem, and then he reminds them of the authority. Here's the problem. Now, let me tell you, God gave me this vision. He gave us this labor, and He is in authority. We can trust in Him. That's what He does. The problem, the solution, God. And then, only then, 
does he pull out the papers and say, oh, by the way, the king's also given us approval? Only then. He doesn't keep the practical to the side, but he's placing their hope in God, their trust in God, their faith in God, and saying, look, it is God that is giving us this project. It is God that's going to bring it to completion. It is God that's going to receive the glory. That's godly leadership. That's good leadership in the church. This project is not ultimately about Nehemiah. It's about God. Labor is not about him being satisfied or the people in Jerusalem being satisfied or his name gaining renown or their name gaining renown, but rather he continues as a servant, a servant of the Most High King, and he knows that this is kingdom labor for the glory of the King. And so he's committed to it, and he's going to lead others in. We desperately need desperately need more Christians who are laboring for the glory of the King and are confident in God. And I would say we even more desperately need godly leaders who can lead like this in the church. That is one of my great passions and one of my great hopes for URC is that we will commit ourselves to raising up godly men and women who are leaders in the kingdom. Pastors, I hope we send them out here by the dozens. Missionaries, I hope we send them out here by the hundreds. Leaders in the business world that are operating by a Christian ethic, Moms and wives and are leading by godliness and helping to shape others. The fields are white unto the harvest, but the workers are few, is what Jesus said. I told this story a number of times, but it always goes through my head when I'm thinking along these lines. I was sitting in a meeting once, a group of whole bunch of PCA pastors. Uh, I called it a leaders meeting and Midwest leaders meeting. I was sitting in this meeting and I was sitting next to uh, a Korean brother and we were just dialoguing and just talking and, and uh, during the meeting and, and about halfway through the meeting, the leader of the meeting got up and I won't mention the brother's name, but he said to the brother, he said, can I put you on the spot? How many men has your church sent off to seminary? This pastor labors in another Midwestern city in a university town. And they seek to reach out to students. And he said, I don't know. And the man leading the meeting said, okay, we know you're humble. Just, just give us a guess. How many men in the past 10 years have you sent off to seminary? I don't remember the exact number all these years later. But it was something like this. He said, I don't know, 10 years, maybe 60 men. I grabbed him afterwards. I said, what, what are you doing? 
And he said, we're just intentional. He said, the fields are white unto the harvest, but the workers are few. So we're seeking to grab and train up workers and send them out. We're just intentional. That's godly leadership that has a kingdom impact that will be felt for generations upon generations upon generations. I hope we can be more and more a church like that. I hope you and I can be more and more godly leaders like that. Much like Nehemiah, having a great kingdom impact for the glory of our King. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we are thankful. We're thankful that you have a kingdom over which you reign. We're thankful that you have made us servants in that kingdom. Oh, we would seek to be godly servants who give you glory. But Lord, we would seek to be even more than that. Help us to be godly servants who lead others well, that you might receive even more glory. Would you use us as a church? Would you use us as a people? Would you use us as individuals? Oh, for we want to ascribe you the glory that is due your name. And we want to see many led unto you. It is in Christ, our great leader's name we pray. Amen.